Welcome listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose-Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm a longstanding journalist of the environment, food, health, policy, the media, and popular attitudes. Each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between personal and community well-being and what's going on in our larger society and our global environment. Uh, the topic on today's show is quite relevant. Um, you know, over the last decade that this podcast has been going on the Progressive Radio Network, and we're now entering our 10th year, or maybe it's our 11th year, actually. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's our 10th year. Um, you know, over that time, we've talked with a lot of different experts, authors, advocates, uh, scientists, economists, uh, planners, poets, filmmakers, about all of the different facets of our interconnected world. And, of course, we've done a major emphasis, a major emphasis of this program for the entire decade that it's been up, has been climate, environment, fracking, infrastructures. Um, you know, this is kind of uh, home turf for us as well as the political decisions and uh, understandings and science um, to bring people to address this incredible challenge. Um, we've reported on and covered and had, you know, all kinds of interesting um, thought leaders and policymakers covering the Green New Deal on the program since the Green New Deal was first mentioned. And this is also our second show covering a new book on the Green New Deal, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Uh, this is a terrific book. I keep recommending it uh, over and over on this show. It's actually a very easy read. It kind of fills in a lot of blanks and does that great job of allowing us to picture how some of these things can unfold so that we're, you know, we're not just kind of stuck, you know, at, at the electric car, as, as important as that might be, or plastic bags or other consumer choices to really look at the larger policies, infrastructures, and investments that um, can happen and are proposed uh, in, you know, the platform of Bernie Sanders to happen to bring uh, a Green New Deal into being. And today, on today's show, I have one of the co-authors of A Planet to Win with me, and um, he also is uh, uh, been editing a series for um, Jacobin on this exact topic, so he can really discuss this in a very 360-degree way. So I'm really delighted to welcome Daniel Aldana Cohen, who's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. His writing has also appeared in The Guardian, Nature, The Nation, Jacobin, and a whole bunch of other places. And um, you know, if you think that the tr en energy transition that we need to save our planet and, you know, by getting our, our, ourselves off of fossil fuels is just, you know, as simple as like one wind turbine or, or plugging in an electric car, um, you're going to enter a whole new creative and interesting world of possibility as we talk today with Daniel Odana Cohn. Welcome to Connect the Dots. Uh, thank you so much for having me on, Allison. It's a pleasure. You know, one of the places that we've been 
uh, stuck on, I think, in the environmental movement or, you know, in advancing its ideals for a while is the idea that it's somehow incumbent on people um, to make individual consumer choices. And, you know, our, our sense of possibility, engagement, empowerment to participate in and redirect government has been so shattered and reduced, not just in the current administration, but, you know, I would argue for many decades, that people can't even conceive of a, you know, a major shift that would make this possible, A, because it's never happened, and B, I think because of tremendous uh, sense of political disengagement and disempowerment. Um, So, you know, what you're really looking at um, in A Planet to Win is how we could redirect and what we will be needing to redirect in order to bring about the energy transformation to a new society. Um, You know, what are the kind of foundational, not, you know, the foundational technology, but the foundational um, systemic shifts that we need to kind of see as part of this and welcome um, and then we can get on to more specifics later in the show. But, you know, what are those that people, you know, need to kind of get a bigger sense of scope about? Great. Thank you. Um, that's a nice big question. Uh, I think it's helpful to just start by laying out what I think the basic concept of the Green New Deal is, and then from that, the core energy piece, um, if okay. you will. Sure. The to, Yeah, to me, the kind of... A nice way to think about what's distinctive about the Green New Deal, at least in the version of it proposed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, and others, um, there are three elements. One is massive public investment and coordination to ensure that we can decarbonize the economy as quickly as possible. You know, Ideally, at some point in the 2030s, um, if not early 2040s, um, but a very aggressive kind of calendar backed by public investment, public coordination, public mobilization. Um, a second piece is this idea of a jobs guarantee, um, you know, green jobs or jobs that are climate friendly uh, for everyone. Um, and obviously people displaced by the fossil fuel industry disappearing are going to be prime beneficiaries of this jobs guarantee. And then third is the idea of direct local investment, um, and in particular in black and brown communities, um, and other racialized communities and working-class communities that have borne the brunt of pollution so far. Um, so I think that already gives a sense of the, this is really fundamentally a vision of really rapid transition of the economy that is kind of in many ways built from the bottom up and that benefits workers and um, people who have suffered the most uh, in this transition. So in terms of energy, then, I think the, the transformation of the energy system really has to follow that logic. Um, and that, I think there are kind of two foundational pieces, you know, to, to get back to your question. Um, one of them is, of course, just getting rid of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Um, it's not enough just to add new clean energy. We have to get rid of the problem, and that problem is burning coal, burning oil, burning fossil gas. So we have to get rid of fossil fuels. We have to replace those fossil fuels with clean energy instead, energy like solar power, uh, wind energy. We could think about geothermal sources of energy, um, in some cases hydro, but, you know, fundamentally clean renewable energy uh, that we increasingly know about. 
Um, and I think the, the last thing I just want to say as a way of kind of getting us started is that if we tried to replace all the fossil fuel energy that we currently produce with renewable energy, that would take a very long time, and that could also be quite wasteful. Um, it would involve a huge amount of mining for you know materials for wind turbines, uh, materials for solar panels, materials for rechargeable batteries, and we, we want to limit that. So one of the biggest ideas I think that we have throughout the entire book is that we want to come up with a strategy for ensuring that everybody has access to, to plentiful and affordable renewable energy, but also that we fundamentally reduce the amount of energy that is required to live well. That's the kind of one of the ways that this book breaks with green capitalism. We're not saying that we want to have the exact same growth model, the exact same amount of waste and all of that, but we're substituting clean energy for fossil energy. What we're saying is that we want a new kind of energy system that's more egalitarian and more fair and where we live much lighter on the earth. And I think as we get into some of the details of that, um, we can flesh out concretely what that, what that vision is. That sounds great. You know, also when, you know, I just am wondering if you could clarify, I mean, I think it's probably self-evident, but it may not be so for all listeners. You know, when we talk about the timetable that you're discussing, um, how does that compare with, for example, the timetables of um as, as far as you're aware of them, of the various candidates, for for example, competing for the Democratic Party nomination. The reason I ask this is because, of course, the climate and green topic have been excluded, actually, from the conversation and apart, you know, about our choice of candidates. And so I think that, you know, people uh, famously give lip service to various things, you know, speaking rapidly at a debate and other people can't really, you know, listeners, you know, an average citizen can't unpack um, the uh, the interpretation of what that actually means in terms of whether we're achieving the goal or not. They're hearing hopeful language, and, you know, that's kind of all they know because the topic hasn't been unpacked. Um, there really hasn't been, um, unless, you know, of course, they're reading in the independent media, they may not hear, you know, uh, a, a real analysis of it. So I don't want to go too long down this particular alleyway, but because of the timing of the show, I just, you know, would love to hear if you – have have a take on you know how uh, how how far you know it has been depicted in your understanding that people are going or whether we're having a really um, you know a really serious short, shortfall in the proposed planning. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, um, if I remember correctly, Bernie is proposing to decarbonize. Uh, I think electricity production in the range of by around 2030, and Warren is talking about 2035. Other candidates don't have quite so stringent a timeline. I mm -hmm. try not to get too hung up on those numbers because at the end of the day, it's a little bit hard to know, and they are multiple years out. Um, Warren's um, timeline is longer than Bernie's. They both involve building clean energy well over five times as quickly on an annual basis than we have been doing so far. And so a huge transition, just an absolutely mm -hmm. huge transition. So I think we can talk about some of the contrasts between the plans, but I think part of the idea 
they were trying to get out with the book is not to worry so much about the timelines that are even just 10 or 15 or 20 years out. I mean, we say that you want to have the most aggressive possible timeline because it's better to miss 2030 by a few years than to miss 2040 by a few years. Um, mm -hmm. But we want to kind of get onto this footing of, okay, what does it mean immediately? Not as like a number or a graph of the 2030s or mm -hmm. 2040s. What does it mean immediately to start the transition right away? And so I think, you know, generally speaking in climate politics, we've been ill-served by timelines that are too far out into the future and not mm -hmm. having enough kind of concrete discussion of what we would do in the immediate years ahead. Well, I, I, I love that. What, you know, what do you see us doing, let's say, you know, optimally um, with uh, a Sanders presidency, in 20, you know, in 2021? Or, what, you know, what, what would we need to begin doing yesterday, right now, tomorrow? <laughs> great. That's a great question. So I think one step is we have to deal with the fossil fuel industry. And the argument that we make in the book, I mean, I co-wrote this book with three incredibly brilliant, uh, you know, co-authors. Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Tia Rio-Francos. And the kind of first argument that we sort of lay out in the book and in one of the chapters is we have to shut down the fossil fuel industry as it currently exists. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that we're going to stop using fossil fuels in 2022, but the problem is basically this. If I'm a fossil fuel executive, the valuation of my company is based on my promise to burn all the reserves that my company owns. And collectively, fossil fuel companies own, and it depends on how you do the math, but somewhere between two and five times as much uh, reserves of fossil fuels as we can safely burn without breaching all of our targets of safe warming levels, you know, uh, mm -hmm. certainly breaching two degrees Celsius. And so what that means is that even if, fossil, even if a fossil fuel executive becomes personally invested in this idea that we need to, you know, dramatically reduce the, the combustion of fossil fuels, if that executive made that corporate policy, then the shareholders would simply revolt and, and replace the executive. So because at the end of the day, since fossil fuel companies can only burn somewhere between you know, a half and a fifth of their reserves, that means that their valuation uh, on the stock market has to be cut by you know, 50 to, to 80%. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no way that the private ownership of fossil fuels is compatible with winding down that industry. So we propose nationalizing the fossil fuel industry and then managing its decline, ensuring that we are pumping and burning less and less uh, every year, to, you know, somewhat dramatically, and that the workers in those industries have their wage rates guaranteed, their pensions guaranteed, and ultimately are moved on to other you know, equally good paying jobs um, in other fields. So step one you asked is to take ownership of the fossil fuel sector, hopefully after crashing its share price, to then take ownership of the fossil fuel sector and manage its decline. And then step two is a transformation of the whole energy system. So that involves things like rapid deployment of solar and, and wind. Um, right now, building new wind farms and building new solar farms can be pretty disruptive in rural communities, which is where it actually mm -hmm. physically takes place for the most part. People often get upset by it. We argue right. that you really do need to do the democratic consultation, otherwise people will revolt. So in the very short term, I think we're talking about things like increasing transmission capacity, building new power lines. In many cases, that would mean building them underground, a really rapid increase in rooftop solar, and there's all kinds of regulations we can change and financial incentives we can change. But we need to have much more rooftop solar, and that's a lot less disruptive um, than solar farms. We need to accelerate things like offshore wind turbine development, um, things like electric vehicles. Uh, so we could get into some of the 
nitty gritty, but I think that that's exactly the right question is like, okay, one year in, two years in, two years in, what are the physical changes we're going to make? And hopefully that then gets us on a, on a pattern where we're ratcheting it up, the victories and the ambition each year. You know, we're not going to get to 10 times more solar wind deployment next year than last year, but maybe by the second or third year, we're up to that rate. So, you know, I have a question when, you know, because whenever I, I, I hear this, I'm imagining, you know, um, all of these consumers, uh, you know, homeowners getting kits or, or people putting it atop their apartment building or uh, independent contractors coming in and doing this, pay, you know, and maybe the pricing is, um, you know, subsidized uh, by the government to, to bring it within um, people's pocketbook range so that more people can do it. Is it something like that? Or, or do you visualize it as, for example, uh, people hired by government who are just like, you know, kind of out on the job and this is p- part of like a work progress uh, kind of uh, happening or, you know, that people then are hired into. Uh, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the role of government, because I think some I think some people are, you know, America has been so individualistic and, you know, my home, my job and, you know, and all of that, that the idea of, you know, sort of loss of uh, liberty or control or, you know, who you're working for. So, I mean, is it a matter, is it kind of a... Uh, a privilege, you know, to insist on, you know, individual suppliers and independent contractors, or is it actually an economic uh, practicality um, to do that? I'm, you know, I'm just curious about that. As someone Thanks. who lives great... in rural communities. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I, you know, there's no question that a big hurdle for the Green New Deal will be the kind of intrinsic or, let's say, intuitive distrust of government that's been built up in the U.S., basically forever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ended by the right, essentially. Um, yes. I think that when you talk about some of the smaller-scale projects like you just raised, I, we have to imagine that this will be somewhat flexible. Um, mm-hmm. So we've talked, and, you know, we talk in the book, we endorse this idea, and it's most, um, it's, and it exists in its biggest form in California. So in California, they have something called the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is revenue from the state's cap and trade. And the idea, or in law in California now, one th- approximately one-third, 35% of the clean investments made through the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund have to go directly into frontline communities. That's working class and racialized communities. So this is an idea very important to the Green New Deal and to the Green New Deal resolution introduced by AOC uh, and Ed Markey back in um, February 2019. So um, if we are talking about, for instance, uh, federal grants, to low, you know, for, for low-income communities, I think you can think about different possibilities. You can talk about uh, zero-interest loans for businesses. You could talk about potentially the federal government just literally paying contractors to put solar panels on multifamily apartment buildings or on low-income homes. Um, I think you could also think about worker co-ops as a really essential strategy for transforming the structure of the economy. And when you have Mm -hmm. federal grant programs, eventually what you're doing is you're distributing money locally that has to be spent based on certain criteria. And you could have very favorable criteria such that it essentially makes sense for local government to be hiring uh, worker cooperatives to go and install the solar panels. So installation of solar panels, since you asked, is an interesting business. uh, You have to learn some skills. It takes some some work to do, but it's not like uh, starting a solar panel installation business is like starting a car manufacturer. You know, it doesn't take that level of skill or difficulty. Mm-hmm. So I think that 
you know, my at least in the way that I sort of see it, I'd be much more interested in fostering cooperatives and, if necessary, in certain cases, you know, local, local government workforces than, let's say, literally having the federal payroll paying workers to, to do it. Now, there may be some cases, let's say, in, in hard-to-reach rural agencies where you really want to have, like, a small federal task force, kind of WPA style, where they go around and you put up panels where they don't fit. But at the end of the day, I think this fundamental vision of the Green New Deal is using federal funding, unlocking federal funds to um, support local initiatives that are creative and that are flexible based on, on local concerns. And that, you know, if it makes sense to set up worker cooperatives, if there are people interested in that, it can go to that. Um, if there's a local agency that's already working on this, it can expand. Um, if there's already a thriving private market, then you adjust the incentives to make sure that those panels are going up on low-income homes first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of the uh, rural populations, uh, you know, how are people going to, I mean, some populations may take to the idea of cooperative, but it's actually, a, you know, it's kind of a relatively new idea. And as somebody who's belonged to a cooperative, um, for you know, for over, well, I guess 20 years or so at this point, you know, I can also confess that there's just, you know, a lot of kinks in functioning cooperatively. Um, you know, the people are not as, you know, skilled in, or, you know, it's even, it's kind of outside of the value set um, that, you know, many Americans have lived in. I think the younger generation is really, because of the economic um, blows to our economy and to, you know, the, the high cost of education and, and all the rest of it, are basically, you know, rapidly uh, adapting and changing to live in a more communitarian model um, and, you know, in fact, are, are, are kind of modeling what that looks like for everybody. Um, but how do you see the other generations who have been, um, you know, who have, who have come along and grown, you know, with this individualistic, you know, sort of single person business, single homeowner, you know, kind of, of mindset uh, adapting? Thanks. It's um, it's interesting to think about about this. There are so many different components to it. I mean, there's definitely a big rural-urban split in how yep. Americans perceive politics. There's also a very important regional split. Um, if you look at public opinion, you know what, like quote unquote, rural people in Appalachia, how they respond to survey questions is very different from, let's say, how they do in in New England. And, and you know, we could go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we, we have to recognize that. Um, there's also a very important generational split. I mean, we saw this in the U.K. with Corbyn, and we're, we're, we see it in all the polls uh, here as well. And, I, you know, I work with Data for Progress, which is a polling organization. So I've been on the back end of a large number of polls. And you have, again, this urban-rural split, and you have a very substantial generational split. And I think we have to be mindful of the fact that if the Green New Deal is going to work, it has to make a really positive impact in rural parts of the country, that we can't let that Seeds that entire territory to the right, and electorally mm-hmm. and politically, it'd be of course very dangerous to only have people under 45, you know, supporting the Green New Deal. So, um, is everything going to be done by cooperatives? I'm sure that it won't. Um, can we expect over time a, a, a major increase in cooperatives? I mean, I don't know. Um, I think there are different forms of cooperative. You know, there are um, consumer cooperatives. Um, there are ownership cooperatives where essentially all that's asked is that you sign your name on a piece of paper and you got some economic dividend. And that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. bad. So in Germany, Mm -hmm. in rural Germany, you know, you have the rise of wind power in the form of rural energy cooperatives uh, where 
neighbors shop around to each other, but it's not that every member of that cooperative is literally out working on the wind turbine. Um, and around, hmm. in, uh, I think about 2012, about 46% of the clean energy in Germany was produced by energy cooperatives. Um, you know, 20, 30 years prior, you know, it was zero. Um, so is it possible in the U.S. to, I think, over time ramp up the number of cooperative structures? I think absolutely. But I think you're right that it, it depends. And you have sometimes a cooperative model where everybody's going to meetings every day. And in other cases, you have much more indirect forms of cooperative ownership, which is not maybe not so different from owning a mutual fund. Um, so last mm-hmm. thing I would just say quickly, and, and I think this is, this is important, is you know, we want to think about democratizing the energy system on, on different scales. So if you're talking about rooftop solar, then, yeah, those panels can be installed um, by a very small business or by, by a cooperative. Um, and and they're, they're, they go basically house by house or barn by barn. Um, and that's mm-hmm. great. Um, but and, and the, even a small wind turbine um, sort of farm, you know, a few, a few turbines, maybe 10, 20, 30, that could be owned by a, a local town, um, a, a number of its members. But when you talk about offshore wind turbine developments, these are extremely capital mm-hmm. intensive, you know, tens and tens and tens mm-hmm. of millions of dollars just to get started. Even very large solar arrays can potentially be quite massive. So I think we need to then start thinking about institutions like public banks or like pensions. Um, uh, of workers, where the form of democratic participation isn't necessarily, yeah, going to a meeting with five or ten or twenty people uh, in your locality, but it also simply means that you have some kind of ownership stake. And if you decide to get involved, you can. And I would add to that that people often forget labor unions are a democratic institution. And so, if an offshore wind, um, <coughs> excuse me, if an offshore wind turbine facility is being built by union labor. And you have the kinds of labor participation on corporate boards that candidates like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren are talking about, then you do actually have some democratic oversight of that energy project um, by the workers themselves. So I think we have a very, I'd almost call it like an overdetermined democracy vision, which is that everybody in the Green New Deal should have multiple pathways of having some kind of control over the energy system. And we don't want to get stuck in a like somewhat old, small is beautiful left, left idea that democracy only obtains when it's a meeting of like 35 people in a school gym or, or fewer or something like that. No, there are many, many, many different ways that you can have cooperative mm-hmm. ownership, cooperative control, and some of that might be pretty big scale. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's really That really makes a lot of sense. And it also sounds more realistic. I mean, I think the reason why these, um, you know, kind of, questions that look at small fragments of the situation have to be asked is that, um, and, and, and that's kind of the thrust of my original question to you, you know, this kind of big picture, multi-textured uh, layered thinking uh, about our systems and where, you know, and how they are and, 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 and what needs to change and where, you know, that, that needs to shift to, that needs to be restructured. You know, we haven't really been free to ask these questions because even, you know, people look at the political system and say it can't change. You know, there's just been this amazing uh, disengagement and disenfranchisement and therefore, you know, a kind of collapse of the possibility of even imagining some of these things. You know, another area which you discuss uh, in the book, which I think is really uh, fascinating as well, you know, we talked about the sense of individual energy, you know, one is in one's individual home, getting one's individual energy, and then the choices that one can make are extremely limited to what is, you know, kind of on offer, which at this point serves the fossil fuel companies. Um, You know, what another 
angle on that is housing itself. You know, the idea that every, uh, obviously, you know, people live in, in some form of dwelling that is belongs to them and their family, you know, that, that they reside in. But, but you know, how might um, even how we house ourselves, um, you know, move from that kind of model um, toward a future that is, uh, more energy friendly and perhaps more communitarian than than these like you know than, than this particular form of isolation. Thanks. Yeah, I mean that's a really great question, and there, there are so many pieces of it. Um, right now, we have a housing model that definitely is way too expensive. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Something like 20 million American households pay a third of their income or more um, in rent or mortgage payments, and another 20 million pay half of their income or more uh, in rent or mortgage payments. So, <clears throat> sorry, um, that's uh, out of control. Um, we have a huge housing crisis, you know, half a million people homeless uh, on any given night, sleeping in the streets or in shelters or in other forms of non-permanent accommodation. So we have to do something about that. Um, and at the same time, intersecting with this crisis of home affordability is a crisis of home energy affordability. Um, mm -hmm. About a third of Americans can't afford to pay their utility bills. That means they got a utility shutoff notice um, in the last several months, or they've kept their home at an unsafe temperature, or they've sacrificed on other essentials like food um, to pay their utility bills. So, and, and this is racialized. Um, in the mid-Atlantic, about half of black families can't afford their utility bills. So we have a huge crisis, um, and we have, to, we have to make really big change. Um, we talk in the, in the book about this idea of a Green New Deal for housing. Um, and so there are different components of this. I think one is rent control. Um, you have to make it so that people are not kicked out of their homes and evicted and thrown on the street uh, just because the landlord arbitrarily tries to jack up the rent. Um, and this is important for the environment, obviously, for many reasons, but one of them is that one of the greatest causes of gentrification now in neighborhoods is environmental improvement. Actually, if you look in New York City, for instance, at most of the neighborhoods that have been major environmental justice sites, think of Harlem, Sunset Park, Williamsburg, Greenpoint, um, and increasingly now the South Bronx, these are the, have been the front lines of gentrification. So community members work really hard to clean up their neighborhoods, to fight back against the corporate structures and, and governmental structures that have poisoned these black and brown neighborhoods. And when they finally have done this and achieved this cleanup, next thing you know, real estate prices go up and, and the people who did the work um, ultimately have to leave. So rent control is a very important strategy for stabilizing neighborhoods and for ensuring that the people who've lived in those neighborhoods benefit as those neighborhoods um, get, get better and get cleaner, um, uh, better and cleaner to live in. Um, there's another piece which we talk about, which is retrofitting the public housing we already have and building a new model of social housing, much more on the best Western European examples like Vienna, um, really, really high quality public housing, extremely energy efficient, integrated into communities and in many ways sort of helps us set the standard for building construction all across the private sector uh, as well. And then another piece that links up to these other ones is this idea that we have to, yes, actually fight for density like many urbanists now, um, not everywhere. We're not saying that it's, you can't live in rural areas, but we do want to have a certain, we want to have more density, and especially in suburbs, but that has to be affordable. Right now, you have a model where essentially walkability is becoming a luxury item. Um, so densification is really about 
kind of catering to the lifestyle preferences of young yuppies, young professionals, and creating kind of like consumptive playgrounds for them, but where they get to walk to work or walk around. And our vision instead is a little bit different. Our vision is that mixed income, multiracial, democratic neighborhoods, and we can increasingly have these in suburbs. And what's interesting about this vision of density we're pushing is it's actually really in tune and you, you talked about this communal piece, it's really in tune with the best feminist visions of urban planning. Um, so if you think about the architectural historian, you know, Dolores Hayden, writing back from the 1970s onwards, she, in the 70s she has this great article, What Would a Non-Sexist City Be Like? And a non-sexist city is a city where people who are caring for children uh, have access to collective care centers, to daycares that are affordable, and they can walk to those, right? So the old suburban model where the man goes into the city during the day and you know, the mom might be isolated with her kids after school and so on, that's not, that's not good. And it's, it's a hostile and sexist model. And density, uh, at least a certain level of density, really is important to have that kind of thing like collective care. So you could talk about uh, social housing complexes that have courtyards where parents can raise their children uh, collectively, you know, take turns watching the kids. But you can also talk about, and, and Dolores Hayden talks about this and other work of hers, in suburbs, it's not that you want to recreate the street life uh, as you would do, let's say, in Greenwich Village in New York. That's not really possible. What you do is you take down the fences between backyards behind neighborhoods, and then you have kind of a courtyard between those houses. And if you imagine slightly densifying suburbs with things like um, granny apartments in the, in the back or allowing tenants in the basements, that starts to fill in the community there a little bit and allows more collective child care to occur, maybe make it easier to find friends to go play sports with or to meet other people that you might, you know, sign up for a ceramics class with or, or you name it. So I think we, you're absolutely right. Housing is at the core, is a core question when it comes to energy, um, when it comes to affordability of living. But we also want to change the housing system in a way that it's less about private wealth accumulation and more about having an opportunity for that community life that I think most of us yearn to have more of. Yes, definitely. Um, and, you know, actually, you're right, it is about a wealth system, like everything. I mean, the healthcare system is about a wealth system. I mean, the food system is about building wealth for, you know, toxic poisoners, um, you know, who are not even, who are growing commodities rather than healthy foods to feed people. I mean, it, it just, you know, it, 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 so much can happen when we no longer buy into and assume that there can be uh, some kind of uh, play there. I mean, do you... You're, what I'm imagining in what you're saying is some kind of combination of retrofitting new structures, expanding existing spaces. I mean, there's, um, it seems like it's not just going to be like, you know, monolithic housing complexes that you're going to be suggesting become communal, but more, but when you're saying densifying suburban areas, for example, um, you know, how, how would that happen? I mean, there would be building of additional structures, there'd be uh, expansion of, 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 you know, of structures? I mean, like, how, how would you f kind of foresee that? Like, what models would be available for people to kind of begin to imagine? Thanks. Um, yeah, you're right. We're not trying to do monolithic uh, towers. Um, and the truth is that See, the U.S. has been so well-served, of course, by its own history, but also by not knowing enough about its own history. So in the 1930s, mm -hmm. under the New Deal, you had, um, through the Public Works Administration, a model of very high-quality public housing, essentially a public option, if you will, that was not limited by income, 
but was meant to restructure in a, in a way, sort of raise the level for the entire private market and to build uh, social housing of the very highest quality, similar to what was being done already in Europe and places like Vienna or in Frankfurt at, at that time. Um, and this was very good housing. And the real estate industry was terrified of this. And they fought very hard to shut that down. So what happens in 1937 um, with the Housing Act is essentially the real estate industry wins. And what they win is this, a two-tier housing system. On the one hand is public housing only for poor people. So the idea was stop building public housing that anybody could access. Now it's only available to people who make 20% less than what amount would be required to reasonably get into private market housing. Um, and mm-hmm. along with this, very aggressive rules so that the amount that the federal government could spend per unit was so low that you really were not able to create high-quality housing. So the bottom tier of the sort of social housing or public housing model from 1937 onward is public housing as a model of last resort, which would make it economically very difficult to build uh, you know, at any kind of quality. And of course, it isolates uh, residents and makes them seem like cast-offs from society and they're politically not very powerful constituency. And then on the other hand, you have government-subsidized mortgages for, you know, in some cases working class, but mostly middle and upper middle class white families. Um, And from this, you ultimately get suburban flight. And this is all wrapped up in redlining as well, which is another form of racist segregationist um, practices. So, the, the kind of big defeat in the New Deal is the idea that the government will subsidize white home ownership and it will create the worst possible public housing for black and brown families. Now, despite that handicap, there were many good housing, public housing developments and New York City until recently where it's really been neglected has had very high quality public housing that's reached a lot of goals. And I think often public housing, well, always public housing has been unjustly stigmatized. But that doesn't mean that a return to public housing is going to be a return to the U.S. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s model. No, we want to have the social housing model from Europe, which is um, much more architecturally diverse, integrated into communities, mixed income, multiracial. Um, and again, we're, what we're doing is we're setting a standard for the entire private, um, private market. Now, you asked about a couple other things. I just want to touch on them really quickly. One, and, and so in terms of suburbs, I mean, you're not going to build, I think, a social housing complex, uh, just like take it one McMansion and put in a social housing complex, uh, you know, in between two McMansions. Um, we have had for for years, yeah, it would be fun. We've had for years things like smart growth, uh, new urbanism, and, and we've been developing ideas and understanding of how to densify suburbs. And it looks like things like changing the regulations so that anybody can build a little uh, you know, extra small little unit in the backyard uh, that a tenant could live in or an older member of the family could live in. Um, you, What you really are thinking about is like putting in public transit, whether it's a bus rapid transit or let's mm-hmm. say a streetcar or something. And around that, mm-hmm. you're then going to densify a little bit of a commercial concentration with mixed use housing, which means that you, know, you might have commercial on the ground floor and then some units of housing for floors three, four, and five. And, and so you kind of create essentially like main streets or little towns um, in the sort of central regions, and then you have a density gradient um, behind that. So I think there are ways of doing it really contextually, really kind of lovingly that we want to embrace. And then the last thing I just want to say quickly is we do really want to focus on local needs. So for instance, if you take Philadelphia or Baltimore, there are vast numbers of vacant homes. In Philadelphia, there's something like 25,000 vacant row houses. And an idea that Mm. 
some some people are developing here, and I'm working with a, a primary for state senate candidate, Nikhil Saval, who's a terrific, very brilliant, um, longtime labor and and left uh, neighborhood organizer. And what we're talking about um, is uh, borrowing from a model in, in Baltimore. Why not have a campaign to retrofit um, those abandoned row homes and then put them into community land trusts, which means that they're owned by the community, um, but then families can live in them. Uh, but are not subject to the to market price, right? So it's kind of like it's not public housing in the sense that it's owned by the city. Uh, the land is owned by the community, and then the house itself may ultimately be owned by the community. It depends on the model. But people will live in them, same as they would live in any other uh, row house, but it would be affordable to get into, and it kind of stabilizes community wealth um, because it's long-term, essentially permanently affordable and off of the market. So it's not like... We have this cookie cutter vision. We're all across the country. We're going to drop this like prefab Lego, you know, vision of public housing. But <laughs> place by place, we're going to say, okay, what's the best way to make the housing model yeah. work better here? Yeah, that's funny. You know, I uh, I was down in 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 Philadelphia, um, you know, for Netroots Nation this this last summer, and I was driving a friend uh, to you know to a different neighborhood in order to meet some people that she was meeting up with. Um, and, uh, so it took me into an area, uh, a, a black neighborhood that had the kinds of houses that you're talking about. And, you know, being a New Yorker, um, where, you know, you're, you're just constantly looking at buildings and real estate and every, you know, it's just, it, it kind of goes through the territory. I was like, I was seeing, you know, things that might've been the same ones you're talking about. I was like, oh my God, these are adorable. You know, they looked like they were from the forties or something. And, and then I was like, and, and then I, and then of course, I caught myself and I was like, yeah, you're a gentrifier. Your very presence here is gentrifying. You know, you just happen to be <laughs> dropping off a friend. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I got out of the car because I was having, you know, I needed to redirect myself to get out, of, you know, to drive back where I was going. And the moment I got out of a car, uh, there was a guy in the street who was talking on the phone and he was like, there's a white lady here in the neighborhood. <laughs> I was like, okay, point taken. You know, I'll be, you know, when this whole kind of thing happens, I'm not going to be, you know, following that model that has been inculcated uh, into, you know, middle class and privileged whites and everything else. This, this is their neighborhood. So, you know, I, it's like I, the idea that we can um, respect and honor and create, you know, the proper environments for all you know different sectors of our society that are having different kinds of needs because of different locations different times of life and then instead of some kind of easily recoverable uh, corporate monolith that's kind of imposed on every one with you know tremendous inequity built in um, we can actually rebuild equity with the understanding you know of what needs to be rebalanced historically um, and you know and 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 make that happen make that possible and you know and I can wind up in uh, you know the suburban neighborhood in a little you know as an as a, you know approaching elderhood person you know when I approach elderhood I can you know I can be in, in a, you know hope, hopefully a multicultural neighborhood of some kind but uh, but not you know coming in you know swooping down like uh, you know we've imbibed these capitalist values um, and, and I'm just bringing this in because they're attitudinal shifts um, that accompany all of the plans that you're, you know, that you're describing, which I think a lot of those have been synthesized and integrated in younger generation people that older generation people need to become familiar with 
see themselves in, um, shift our long-time conditioning to be able to accept and see as valuable and also see ourselves within them. And so that's part of the translation <laughs> I'm doing in in talking to you, you know, um, so which I think, you know, I really, really appreciate. And I appreciate, you know, the um, the synthesis of your vision toward things that have gotten so kind of rigidified and stuck till they no longer work for, you know, so many people, the majority of people. So, you know, thank you for all this work, and I hope you don't mind the digression. But when you said South, when you said Philly neighborhoods, I was like, I just saw them immediately in my mind's eye, and they're adorable. They're wonderful. The idea of families um, being, you know, being able to stay in their neighborhoods and being economically supported to do that, um, you know, in a society that really has plenty, but where it is inequitably shared, we should be, you know. With shifting that sharing, we should be redressing a lot of things and really supporting a lot of people that aren't currently supported by the current system, which yeah, is another that's, – that's, that's kind of the economic foundation of what you're talking about. That's absolutely right. And, you know, there are many – the problem with the market system is that it's just not rational and it creates – all these forms of you know emotional emotional anxiety, but but real anxiety, um, because like you were saying, if if a you know a white homeowner shows up in a in a in a low income black neighborhood and buys a home, that's not just oh now I have a new neighbor, which is, you know I think at the end of the day fine great who cares you know uh, it could be good it could be bad depends on the person, um, but it's the threat that suddenly the neighborhood is going to change and there's going to be more and more white homeowners and gentrification and people are going to get, are going to get priced out. So the savagery of the market is something that we have to just acknowledge is a real big problem. And I think that although people distrust, let's say the idea of a government takeover of everything, and we're not proposing that, but you know, people have a lot of anxieties about what's coming next. At the same time, I think they have, uh, they understand all the different ways in which the current system is really not working uh, at all, except for a very small number of people. And I think that over time, just as you were saying, that really has created an opening, and especially among young people who aren't even able to access the benefits of the market system for the most part. Um, I think they're very eager to try something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, <clears throat> this is <clears> – <throat> You know, we verge into it a little, um, but uh, as as a progressive journalist and also as someone who's older, I can see – I see both the resistance to the new ideas, which I am trying to constantly inform older people or, you know, 50s-up people about, um, and I can see resistance both due to just cultural mindsets that have been lived within for so long that they can't even be conceived to be different, and they're constantly reinforced, you know, that they can't change. I mean, that's like the hardening and the rigidifying that occurs, you know, unfortunately, maybe not in all societies, but certainly in this one, as people age. At the same time, I can see that um, you know, part of that is the need for security and to know that you have what you have. And so you have people, for example, voting for Joe Biden, you know, and other candidates for that reason. Um, because, you know, they're, uh, they also, in their own and different ways, have had, uh, you know, and many quite directly have had limited opportunities, you know, because of capitalism. And so they're clinging you know, to whatever they have, and really then engineered to be an opposite 
you know, a resistant force to the changes that could benefit everybody. So that's one of the reasons why in these conversations I'm always asking about uh, how can the benefits be diversified, um, you know, across the population, even with the understanding that, um, you know, white people, many, you know, many segments of white society have had better opportunities, but many have not, you know. So, um, so that, you know, so that everyone can see themselves in the mirror. And I think one of the reasons, you know, of what, of these, of the Green New Deal and what's being proposed and that, you know, not only seeing it in terms of this is actually an imperative for the continuation of the human race and for the lives of the children we have engendered, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I can I can basically personally uh, embrace it on on that basis alone. But in terms of enlisting um, more people, I see, you know, these kind, you know, I want I want people need to see themselves, you know, as a problem in these social changes, just the way, you know, we've had a situation where women want to see a female, you know, some women feel that it must be a female candidate so that I'm seeing myself reflected um, because, you know, people have been um, unseen, unvalidated, invisibilized, uh, and disenfranchised uh, by the society. So, you know, you, I think that thing where, the more people who can see themselves in the mirror of it, the better for uh, buy-in and adoption. So, um, so I just, you know, we have about another seven minutes, and we're talking to one of the co-authors of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, um, Daniel Aldana Cohen. He's the second guest uh, uh, and author from this book. There are four co-authors, as he mentioned, and we've also had an earlier show about two months back with the Rio Francos. Um, so listeners, you can go to the Connected Dots archives and also listen to that program. Um, you know, so as we're down, Daniel, to the final uh, last few minutes, and we're talking with Daniel Aldana Cohn, and he's been really cluing us in on the um, built environment and energy transition. Is there any key feature of what we've been talking about that, you know, that we kind of missed mentioning that you'd like to, you know, just discuss in the final minutes of the show? Sure. Thank you. Um, I think that a couple of things, you know, I'd really love listeners to to take away. Um, one of them is that there is this vision here of an integrated transformation of the built environment that makes it possible to improve most people's lives, to really radically reduce inequalities, um, while at the same time using less physical stuff and less energy. So um, when we talk about the built environment in the book, we talk about creating a decent, um, uh, an energy system with a kind of national grid that's moving wind power and sun power, um, hydropower, geothermal power around the country. Um, so when the sun is shining, let's say, you know, on the coast, or in California, that energy can move its way to the inside of the country. When the winds are blowing in the Midwest, that can power cell phones uh, and power electric buses, you know, in Philadelphia, uh, as well as in, in Minnesota and so on. So we then talk about housing because housing, of course, is so important. It's where we live. It's also one-sixth of the energy. We talk about public transportation because we need to move to models of public transit that are more responsive, that are more nimble, that are more flexible, and that mm-hmm. um, have enough investment to really get the private car out of the picture. It's not that we think there will no more, no, not be any private cars. There will be electric cars, and in rural areas especially, 
there will be electric cars. We hope also electric, you know, pickup trucks, and that technology is, is, mm-hmm. is right around the corner. Um, and then finally, we talk about public recreation. Um, so the New Deal actually invested a huge amount of money. One of the biggest uh, line items in the New Deal was investing in public recreation. Many cities doubled the number of parks that they had or tripled the number of parks um, that they had. Parks, swimming pools, hiking trails. Uh, and in Philadelphia, we have a giant park called the Wissahickon, which is full of little cabins uh, with WPA, Works Progress Administration. Um, stamped onto the onto the bricks. Um, and and mm. the idea here is that we kind of have to create a new physical landscape that all of us live on, where it is possible to not need as much crap, as many end tables, as many lamps, you know, um, as many chips mm-hmm. by private car, where it is physically possible to live very well in proximity, you know, close to our neighbors, close to our loved ones, close to our jobs, close to services, whether it's school, child care, hospital, um, you name it. And from that, make it possible to actually visualize what does it mean to live a kind of, you know, low carbon and, and good life. And, you know, we want folks to think about what would it be like to, let's say, be 35 years old, um, working at a museum, you know, with a with a public job that, you're, you know, friends of yours that you went to college with, you know, working in solar panel factories, maybe running a restaurant that uses relatively local uh, organic food. Um, somebody else might be designing you, you know, super low energy um, social housing. Um, people that you know who went to trade school uh, might be doing things like helping swap out all the gas stoves and replacing them with induction electric stoves. Um, other friends might be full-time artists, might be musicians. Um, others might be running, you know, social services at sports facilities that people in the neighborhood can go to, or art classes um, that a whole multi-generational spectrum of people, again, from the neighborhood can attend and have fun at. So it's not just that we're talking about decarbonizing the energy system, but physically constructing a world where we live in a in a more communally satisfying way where everybody is able to find an outlet for their talents and their ambitions and where there is, you know, genuine collective public support for this idea that you can live well in accordance with, you know, with with your dreams uh, and that people aren't being left behind and their capacities aren't being wasted. And this isn't a 100-year-off utopia, not a 200-year-off utopia. This is something that in the next few years the next few years we can start to build, it's not just compatible with decarbonizing the economy, but in many ways it's essential to decarbonizing the economy because you're using less and less stuff, and instead we're living and building something different um, together. Less, you know, energy, (laughs) high energy in the sense of high psychic energy, um, Mm -hmm. but low energy in the sense of not using so many materials uh, from the earth. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, I think that some of that consumption is really a compensation um, for the loss of community, you know, for the loss of the natural village, you know, with all of the different people connecting and having a way to interact. Um, and, That's right. uh, I yeah, think, I think so, it's also you know. it's, it's an economic strategy, we have to remember, of the elite. No one in the 1970s mm-hmm. was marching for cheaper T-shirts. You know, in the last 40 years, uh, wages are basically stagnant. And the physical consumption of things like clothing and furniture has, has more than doubled. What you've had is the U.S. political economy has replaced the union card with the credit card. And there's been a huge incentive mm-hmm. and push on people to consume. Even so, the main mm-hmm. thing that people 
go bankrupt over are things like student debt, uh, medical debt. Um, so it's not, or housing debt. It's not that, I think, my, the, the point we're trying to make is not that people shop so much at Ikea that it is the cause of all of our problems. But it is, mm-hmm. there is a certain amount of our problems that are, that are there. And so if we replace, um, if we replace the, the kind of credit card model with financial security, economic security, housing security, then yeah, like you were saying, I think we have a different psychic relationship to our physical stuff and the opportunity to really focus much more on relationships between people. Yeah, bravo. I, I think that's that's fantastic. That does sound like, like a, a realizable utopia. Um, thank you so much, uh, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, for being with us today on Connect the Dots and sharing your uh, exciting vision and kind of coloring in a number of the details. I keep Every time you talk, I see that book, uh, that, that cartoon book that uh, Mo- Mo- Molly Crabapple and AOC collaborated on, you know, where this whole new world is kind of drawn out. So, you know, thank you for filling in so many different pictures in that world, verbally here on Connect connect the dots today. Um, so it's been great having you here. Good luck with the book. Listeners, please do um, get A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, because it really spells out so much. So instead of not just, you know, being there with this phrase, Green New Deal, ah, oh, you know, and then we hashtag it, um, there's actually a lot more depth and, and color and complexity and and vision for a future uh, embedded in this book, which is published by Verso, and it has a foreword by Naomi So I hope a lot of people will look at it and read it. Um, If you've enjoyed this interview and who, you know, I I think I've enjoyed it. It's been fabulous with Daniel Oldanacone. Please share this uh, issue of Connect the Dots with your friends. It will be available in archives after this live broadcast uh, for you to share and listen to. And, you know, thank you so much, uh, Daniel, for being with us today. Uh, It's been great having you. Thanks so much for having me on, Alison. It's been a real pleasure. Lots of fun talking about uh, what we can all get done. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Thank you, listeners, and we'll be back with our next edition of Connect the Dots next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Alison Rose-Levy. Be well.